In the King's Speech, Colin Firth plays King George VI, who unexpectedly became the King of England after his father's death and his brother's abdication. With a cripplingly dehabilitating speech impediment, he worked extensively with an Australian speech therapist named Lionel Logue, played by Geoffrey Rush, to prepare him for a life of public speaking. We are now joined on the line by the director of the King's Speech, Tom Hooper. Tom, thank you for joining me. Oh, pleasure. First of all, I just wanted to ask you, in order to give some context to the listeners who may not appreciate the importance of this story, what was the significance of the wartime speeches that King George VI gave? Well, I mean, he was tasked uh, with um, making speeches that explained why we were going to war and uh, inspired people to take up the burden of a Second World War within 20 years of, 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 of a war that had cost a million British lives and countless uh, lives in the Commonwealth and the Empire. Mm-hmm. And um, in the speech that the film builds towards, he talks about the, the pressing need to stand up to a, a German regime which has the doctrine of might is right. Um, and um, it, it, it's a role of you know, inspiring necessary leadership that he needed to fulfil. But of course, because he had a severe stammer, he was a, a man poorly equipped to take on that role of oratory that is so um, necessary in, in this kind of time of crisis. Now, this film began as an extremely personal story for its writer, David Seidler. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his inspiration to tell this story of, you know, a king with a stammer? Well, David... Uh, had a terrible stammer himself as a as a as a boy, and and David used to listen to King George the Sixth on the radio uh, in the Second World War, and his parents used to say to him, David, if the King of England can cope, there's hope for you. Yeah. And so so the King George King George the Sixth was David's boyhood hero, his kind of inspiration, his guiding light, and when he became a writer, his dream was to write about the king. And it was only after he did the screenplay for Tucker, for Francis Ford Coppola, that he thought, okay, now I can turn to my passion project. And he began researching this story and got these intriguing blips on the radar of one Lionel Logue, Australian speech therapist to the king. Um, and he tracked down Lionel, uh, so he tra- tracked down Lionel's son, Valentine Logue, who's living in London. And uh, Valentine said, well, you know, I've got some papers to do my father, but you'd need to get permission from the palace first. So David wrote to the palace, the Queen Mother wrote back saying, please, not in my lifetime, the memories of these events are still too painful. Mm-hmm. And so David waited, little realizing the Queen Mother was gonna to live to 186. <laughs> uh, so it was almost 30 years later that he sat down um, uh, to write this, and by this point he'd lost touch uh, with the Logues because Valentine had passed away and he was living in, and Dave was living in California so he had to write it without benefit of um, the Logue family help um, and then in nine, and then when, once I was aboard nine weeks before the shoot my production design team who were very very meticulous in their research they did track down the Logues and they tracked down Logues grandson Mark who lives in London all of ten minutes from where I live and in his attic were the self same papers which turned out to be a handwritten diary that Lionel Logue had kept of his relationship with the King of England, which no royal historian has ever read, no royal biographer has ever had access to, no member of the royal family has ever seen. And with nine weeks to go, I got my hands on this treasure trove of information and, and we, we, we set about rewriting the script to make 
best use of this extraordinary intimate account of his relationship with the king. That, that, is, that is an incredible document to get your hands on, yeah. and I believe that some of the lines in the film are taken directly from these diaries. Yes, I mean, uh, there's a big speech in the film, and at the end, Lionel turns to the king and says, you still stammered on the W. Yeah. And the king says, well, I had to throw in a few so they knew it was me. Now, I mean, you know, that, 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 those two lines were written by Lionel Logan, King George VI, and they get, you know, one of the biggest laughs in any audience I've sat in. Mm. And what do they tell us? They tell us that wit was very important in, in this relationship between these two men, and that the king was funny, you know, mm. and who, who would have known? Because, I mean, when you see him on the archive, he looks pained and tired and stressed, and, and, and this was a great insight into the, 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 the king had a had a wonderful wit and was clever, and uh, and some historians are rather tough on him because, you know, they, they think he was the sort of dull-witted brother, but they were so prejudiced by the stammer, so, so there were so many character insights came out of this diary. What about the scene in the film where the king sort of has this big cathartic moment and just starts swearing profusely? Is that based on a true story? Uh, that's based on um, what was key to David's speech therapy as a kid in the 1940s, oh, right. and, and David discovered that uh, if he if he swore he didn't stammer like if he, if he sung he didn't stammer and, mm-hmm. um, so the swearing technique he found very liberating and um, he drew on his childhood experiences of uh, uh, to to create to talk about some of the techniques that it's likely that Lionel would have used we know we know some of them from the diaries but uh, it's not a complete picture and 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 because of the when David was born, you know, the, the, the speech therapy he was having was only, you know, 10 years after our story. So, you know, there, there's a reasonable assumption of accuracy in, in terms of the kind of techniques. You spoke a moment ago about um, the humour that was shared between these two men, and that comes across really strongly in the film. The other thing that's fascinating about all their scenes together are they, they seem to, have to be in a constant series of power plays with both, both men attempting to get to higher status. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you gave your actors any specific direction to try to get that dynamic. You know, they, they, I wanted to get that very strong sense of the Australian desire for, you know, for equality. I mean, mm-hmm. Australia is a much less class-bound society than England. And uh, I know, you know, it was my mum's Australian. She comes from Adelaide. And, uh, so I've kind of grown up with an Australian mother dealing with an English father. And and and, and, I, and it was very important that, that as an Australian, he, he said to the king, you know, when you're in my rooms, we're equals. You know, you're not going to get any special favours because you're royal. Um, and it was a kind of key part, that levelling off was a key part of uh, making um, the king rethink uh, his, his, his world. Right. But what ultimately shines through is the friendship. And what's, what's fascinating to me about the king's speech and your previous film, The Damn United, is that The Damn United is about you know, the f- football, the king's speech is about the monarchy. These are two very English institutions that I know I personally have very little interest in, and yet I was captivated by both these films. And I think that's because this uh, very strong friendship is what shines through. Is that what you, what you saw in these yeah, stories? I mean, I mean, you're right that they're, they're oddly enough, these two very different movies mm. have a companionship in that in that in the Damned United, which I'm very pleased you liked. Mm. Um, Brian Clough, this you know incredibly famous English maverick football manager, learns that he's only great with the help of his friend and assistant manager Peter Taylor, played by Tim Spall, 
that it's a hubristic narrative where he learns his greatness does not happen alone. It happens in collaboration mm-hmm. with a friend. And in, and in um, the King's speech, similarly, the King learns that he can be great through collaboration with a friend. He, can, he cannot master his affliction alone. And that kind of that turning out to help from outside is an important part of both movies. And we, you know, we live in a world where we're encouraged to seek all the answers by self-examination, you know, we live in quite a selfish age. It's all about the me generation, and, and these films are actually about the importance of collaboration. And as a director, I feel that very keenly because I, I can only do great work with the help of so many supremely talented people, and I'm utterly dependent on their talent uh, to even go to work in the morning. Um, and and so perhaps it's also a comment on how I feel about the importance of. Of, of these collaborative friendships that I have with, with actors and my heads of department. Well, you've assembled an extraordinary cast for this film, you know, including Guy Pearce and Michael Gambon and Derek Jacobi. Um, I particularly was taken by Timothy Spall's performance as Winston Churchill, and I was just thinking, I reckon your next film should be a biopic about Churchill starring Timothy Spall. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure Tim would love to do that. <laughs> Uh, I like to keep people guessing, so I can't necessarily promise that. Fair enough. Look, finally, I just wanted to ask that the message that I ultimately took from this film is that we all need to have faith in our own voices. And yeah. is that what you see as being the core message to this film? Yeah, I think I think it is, it is find your voice, but also I think we all have blocks between us and our, our best version of ourselves, whether it's shyness whether it's insecurity, whether it's stress. And a stammer is just a very profound version of that block that lies between us and our best selves. And, you know, the story of a, of a person overcoming that block to their best self is, particularly through a friendship, is, is very inspiring because I think that's what we all aim for uh, in our lives to, to a greater or a lesser degree.